welcome. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone, and it's my great pleasure to, uh, week by week, to open the scriptures together here. And so I'll invite you to do that now. If you brought a Bible, or if you didn't, uh, there's one in front of you. It's red. You can't miss it. And we turn to John chapter 2. We are continuing to work our way through this Gospel of John, which is uh, a Greco-Roman biography written by uh, the by the man we know as the Apostle John, one of the first disciples of Jesus, one of Jesus' closest friends as he walked on earth just a few years after Jesus ascended back to heaven, wrote these things down uh, for us so that we would uh, be convinced of who Jesus is. And so we are in John chapter 2, and we're going to look at uh, the first sign that Jesus uh, accomplishes. And so I'll, I'll read the first 12 uh, verses of John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to do. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. This is the word of God. As, uh, as I've mentioned uh, in, in past weeks, the first 12 chapters of John are organized according to um, seven signs that Jesus performs. Seven signs that Jesus performs in these first 12 um, chapters. Uh, You may be uh, a person who's rather skeptical uh, about the miraculous. Maybe, you know, you, you read about miracles or you even hear this miracle and kind of in your heart you're like, yeah, right, I believe that that happened. But what I would what I'd push on you a little bit, um, if that's you, if you if you would have trouble believing that that uh, kind of miraculous sign could actually happen, is to consider how that these um, events are recorded with incredible detail. That that this event, that this sign took place at a particular time in a particular place. Um, that uh, the the, uh, the signs are recorded as eyewitness um, events, and they're actually recorded within 
within 30 years of them happening where there are still eyewitnesses alive who could corroborate, who could either confirm or contest the fact that they happened. And so uh, and very often the, uh, there's, there's names attached to which signs um, they're talking about. And so, for example, you know, you, you wonder about whether this girl was actually dead and raised from, um, from death back to life. Well, go talk to Jairus. He's still alive. You can, you can check this out. And so these are, um, these are recorded as eyewitness uh, accounts. Seven, the seven signs uh, of Jesus in the Gospel of John are, are recorded for us, and they're actually performed by Jesus for two purposes, recorded by John for the same purpose. The first, you see in verse 11, is to reveal the glory of Jesus. That these signs, these seven signs, reveal to us something about the glory of Jesus. There's something, they, they show us something of the glory of his beauty. They reveal to us something of, of his supremacy. They, they show us something of his love and of his grace, of his uniqueness, of his authority. They, re, they reveal the glory of Jesus. And secondly, then, they are written to convince us to put our faith in him. They're written so that we would trust in him. You see that again in verse 11. He says, He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. We know that's why John recorded them as well, because he says so in John chapter 20, verse 30. John, uh, right near the end of this gospel, says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, the ones I have recorded, I've recorded them so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John tells us, he says, I could have written, recorded many, many signs that Jesus did, but I recorded the ones I recorded so that you would be, you would be convinced to put your faith in him, to trust in him, that you would believe in him. And that through believing in him, that you would have life in his name. So these accounts, this account that we've read this morning and, and all the accounts of the other signs in particular are recorded so that we would, we would see the glory of Jesus, that we would see something about him that's beautiful to us, and that seeing that, we would believe in him. And that we would lay ourselves down at his mercy, giving ourselves fully over to him, and that as we give ourselves over to him, that we'd find life in him. You see, when our, when our faith wavers, when our, when our hearts are, are full of doubts, we really have a difficult time going, going all in. Either all in to um, just the ways of this world, the things of this world, just saying, you know, I don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and so I'm going to give myself fully over to this world. But if you're full of doubts, you're like, wow, maybe he is. What if he is who he said he is? Or, or maybe you're more along the lines of, well, I think, he, I think I want to be a disciple of Jesus, but what, what if he's just a sham? What if he's a fraud? What if I find out in the end it wasn't, it wasn't true after all? And, and so what a waste that would be. And so if you're not convinced of the beauty and the glory and the supremacy and the uniqueness, the grace and the love of Jesus, you're not 
going to fully give yourself to the demands of discipleship. You won't fully follow him. You won't follow him in every area of your life. And so these signs answer that what if. They say it's okay to die to yourself because this is who Jesus is. And he's confirmed that. He's shown that. He's demonstrated that through these signs. So that we can give ourselves fully over to Jesus. They show his uniqueness and his supremacy, his beauty and his power. They build our confidence in him. They speak to our minds. They speak to our hearts. So it's, it's important for us to note that they're, they're not just called miracles. It's not that John says, hey, Jesus did a lot of miracles. And here's seven miracles that Jesus did. He calls them signs. Or the NIV that we read here calls them miraculous signs. But signs, signs are a miracle with a message. They're a miracle with a message. Signs point at something. That's why you have a sign, right? It's not, it's it's showing you the way. It's showing um, the significance of something. A sign is pointing at something. It's a miracle with a message. They're metaphors. They have a greater meaning. They reveal who Jesus is and what he has come to do. So let's look at the story and then we'll look at that greater meaning. All right, so the story uh, is that Jesus has been invited to a wedding in, the, in the, the town of Cana of Galilee. It's close to his hometown of Nazareth. So Jesus um, likely is, is good friends with um, either the bride or the bridegroom uh, who are getting married, and he's invited. This is Jesus' social life. He had one. Maybe you never thought about that, but Jesus had a social life, and, and these people had a social life, and they actually invited Jesus into their social life. Some of us try to keep him out of our social life, but Jesus has a social life, and he's invited into the social life of, um, of these people. He's an enjoyable person to be around. I'm sure that after this event, he got a lot of wedding invitations. But, and so at this at this wedding, Jesus really saves the party. Um, in, the, in, this, in, in first century Israel, in the ancient world, the groom was responsible, the groom and his family were responsible for, for providing a feast for the guests that would last one week at least. That was the groom's responsibility. I, for one, thankful that tradition has changed. Just saying. And so, but, but the important thing to understand is that to not provide enough, to, to, to not provide enough food or beverage, to not provide enough would bring about social stigma. His, Jesus' friends here are facing social humiliation. Hospitality in this shame honor culture was, is, is this high value. There's actually some rabbinical writings that would say that it's possible. You could sue people for not providing appropriate hospitality. These got, these, this family, the, the groom and his family, could be sued by the wedding guests for not providing enough for a feast to last a week. So his friends are, are facing this social humiliation, this stigma that would be attached to them forever. And so Mary, Jesus' mother, comes and brings this humiliating news to him. And Jesus, um, the NIV here says, dear woman, that dear isn't there. He just says, woman, why do you involve me? Why are you talking to me about this? Just to be clear, he's not, you might be thinking, you know, woman. 
you know, I don't let my kids talk to me that way. I sure don't let my kids call me woman. But, but he's not being rude here. It's, it's more of a, a miss or ma'am kind of, a, kind of a word. But he doesn't call her mom either. He doesn't call, say her mother. Stop bugging me. He, he's not being rude, but what he's communicating here to, to Mary is, um, you're, I, as I begin my public ministry, I take my orders from the Heavenly Father. And so we'll hear all throughout John that whatever I hear the Father say to do, that's what I do. Whatever the Father tells me to speak, that's what I say. Jesus says, I take my orders in my public ministry from my Heavenly Father. And so... In many ways, you're not my mom. We're transitioning here from a mother-son relationship to actually a master-lord relationship. I'm your teacher. I'm your rabbi. I'm your, I'm your lord as much as I am your son. It's the same word, that woman there, that Jesus would, as he's hanging on the cross, and he says, he sees Mary and he sees John, the author here, um, and he says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. It's the same word, woman. He's saying, ma'am. He's saying, there's a transition happening here. I'm not relating to you as mother so much. And he says, my time has not yet come. Literally, my hour is not yet. My hour is not yet. And so, we'll, we'll talk about the significance of the hour in just a moment. But So Mary just goes to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. To do so, Jesus sees these um, six pots, these stone pots. It's um, John in verse six. There is really slowing down and illustrating for us, showing us, directing our attention to the fact that verse six is really critical. He's saying these are there are six stone jars. They're made of stone, not clay. They're made for ceremonial washing. They're this size. There are all kinds of details about this pot, these pots to say, pay attention to the pots. Pay attention to the pots. We'll get there as well as we look at the deeper meaning of all of this. So Jesus, as we know, tells the servants, fill the jars, the pots with water. They fill them all the way up to the brim. They take it to the MC of the wedding. And he um, kind of chides the groom and says, you know, you really should bring out the best wine first. He says, you know, then you bring out the cheap stuff after the guests have had too much to drink. It says, literally, after the guests are drunk, they obviously don't care what the quality of the wine is anymore. Um, that's when you bring out the cheap stuff. But you've saved the best, the most exquisite, the finest wine until last. And so Jesus here, um, as his friend is facing this social humiliation, says, don't pack up the party Quite yet. I'm here to provide 180 gallons of fine wine to keep the party going. More than enough, more than what could be consumed. Jesus provides in abundance to keep the party going. Like I said, this is a sign. This is showing us something deeper than just Jesus saving his friend from some. Uh, embarrassing situation. Jesus is communicating something, and this is his first sign. This is, this is, he's pointing at something significant here. And what I think that he's pointing at, and what all the commentators would agree, is what Jesus is pointing at here, is that Jesus is the great joy giver. 
Jesus is the great joy giver. You see, in the scriptures, wine is a gift from God. Now, some of us, I know, come from traditions that would teach that any kind of drinking is sin. I can't defend that position from Scripture. Um, Certainly, though, for some, wisdom would say that it is in good wisdom to abstain from all kinds of drinking, Um, especially if, if, if substance abuse runs in your family. Certainly, wisdom would say it's best to abstain. Martin Luther said, drink is from the Lord, but drunkenness is from the devil. The scriptures would never commend drunkenness. The scriptures um, consistently would actually condemn drunkenness. And so if, if becoming drunk is something that's part of your life, the scriptures would call you to repent of that and to, to submit this to the lordship of Jesus. And certainly if, um, if, there's, if there's an addiction to alcohol, if drunkenness is a, is a, is a, a common thing in your life, We'd, we'd urge you to seek help, to, to, to bring this under the lordship of Jesus, and, and let allow us as the church to help as you struggle. But the scriptures say that wine is given as a gift from God to make men's heart glad. For example, Psalm 104, verse 14, 15 is on the screen here, I think, Gabe, if you could throw that up. Psalm 104. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for men to cultivate, that he may bring forth good food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. That's just one example from the scripture of how the abundance of wine is seen as a blessing of God, that if the land produces lots of wine, that is God's favor and God's blessing on the land, that that God is given wine as a gift to humanity to make their hearts glad. And there's many scriptures, in fact, Deuteronomy 28, Zephaniah 1, where one of the curses of disobeying God is that he says, if you disobey me, I'll take away your wine. And the nation gasps, right? He says, if, if you disobey me, if you break covenant with me, he says, you know, your, wine, your land will not produce wine. It is God's intent that we be a glad people, a people with great joy. That's God's intent for you and for us. Jeremy Taylor, who's an Anglican bishop, said, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. God threatens terrible things if we would not be happy. Fyodor Dostoevsky said, He who loves men loves their joy. Speaking of God, he who loves men Loves their joy. And so at this wedding, the joy-giving wine has run out. See, and that's, that's a metaphor for life, right? That joy always runs out on any party that we throw. And I think our culture especially, probably more than, than many others, um, we have this, const, living in this constant state of, I will be happy when dot 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 i finally will be happy when we're looking forward to some thing to happen and we're like that's when i will finally be satisfied that's when i'll finally have this fullness of joy that i crave i'll finally be happy when i finally get married i'll finally be happy when i could finally have children 
I'll finally be happy when I finally get this promotion or when I finally own my own business or when I make my first million or when I get a vacation home, whatever it is, when I go on that vacation, that's what will finally and fully complete me. That's what will finally and fully give me all of that joy that, that, that I, that's aching within me. But they never quite satisfy. There's always the next thing. There's always the next thing. They never quite deliver what we hoped that they would. And that's why some of the most cynical people in this world are those who've achieved their dreams. That those who have, who have achieved or received everything they've ever dreamed of are some of the most miserable, cynical people on the face of our planet. And none of us believe that would be us. We believe, we all believe that if I actually had what this thing, that would actually satisfy me. I'm different. I wouldn't be depressed by that. I wouldn't be cynical. I wouldn't be let down. This would satisfy me. We all believe that. But the joy-giving wine always runs out. And we can respond to that in different ways. Maybe we can blame the things that we were seeking. And so if you're thinking, I'll finally be happy when I get married, and you, you find that your wife or your husband is crushed under the weight of those expectations, and they don't finally and fully deliver that joy for you, maybe you can blame them and, or say, I need a new spouse. I need a new career. You blame the thing that you were, it, it just wasn't quite good enough. Or maybe, you, maybe you, you blame yourself and say, well, I made some bad choices along the way, and so I self-sabotaged my own joy, but so if, when I finally get, I'm a better person and achieve these things or um, receive these things, then, then I'll finally be happy. Or maybe you blame the world. Maybe you become cynical. And say joy doesn't exist. There is an ultimate joy. Or maybe you blame your separation from God. And maybe you say, if grace would open your eyes to see this, that maybe the reason I'm not finally and fully satisfied and filled with this lasting and completing joy is because I'm not actually connected to my creator. C.S. Lewis says this, I have part of this quote up on the wall in my room, in my office. It says, creatures are not born, I think that part of the quote is up here, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, women do too, I think. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I love that last part. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He continues, If none of my earthly... That's not on the screen. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably... Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. 
If that's so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. So don't despise marriage. Don't despise your career. Don't despise those things that, that, that hint at joy. But on the other hand, never mistake them for the, something else of which we, they are only a kind of copy or an echo or a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and help others do the same. You see, God has left traces of himself all over this world. God's left traces of his beauty and his glory. And these press on us a sense of God. Whether, you know, this world is full of beauty. Sunrises, or as I prefer, sunsets. Poetry, family, the smell of fresh ground coffee. Right? Love that, you know, you open the bag. And and these things impress joy on our hearts and caffeine. but But the thing is, they're not meant to terminate on themselves. They're not meant to point to themselves. And what we can do is we can ask too much of them. We demand too much out of those things. And when we do that, when we seek to find our ultimate satisfaction and joy in those things, we end up crushing them. Because they can't stand up under the weight of those kinds of expectations. They were never meant to be the point. You know, people often think Christianity is anti-joy. Where Christianity is just meant to kind of bind us up. So what we say is, don't do this, don't do that, don't have any fun. That's not funny. Right? But Jesus' first sign is to provide 180 gallons of fine wine to keep the party going. He's saying to us loudly, I've come to bring great joy. As one pastor said, the glory of wine is in its capacity to make the human heart glad. And the glory of Jesus is in his infinite capacity to make the heart supremely glad. Where Jesus' feet pass, the desert blooms. The trees laugh and sing for joy. That's the essence of what Jesus is about. He's come to bring joy. No other pleasure can quench your thirst for joy. Every pleasure that you experience, every pleasure that you experience is meant to point you to the source of all pleasures. And every pleasure that we experience in this life, in this world, always run out. But Jesus is the Lord of the feast. He's the giver of infinite, unlimited joy. You see, in the beauty of who he is, in the depths of his wisdom, in the extent of his grace, there is great joy. Jonathan Edwards said, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, are the, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But God is the substance. They are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. 
This, this sign of Jesus is meant to point us to the fact that Jesus is the great joy giver. But in this passage too, we're also hinted at the cost of his joy. It's the second point that I'd like us to see is the cost of his joy. You see, he refers to his hour. He refers to his time. It seems like a strange response. He's really saying to, to, his, to Mary, he says, Woman, why are you talking to me about this? I'm not ready to die yet. It's not my time to die. It's not my hour. All through the Gospel of John, the hour of Jesus is his finest moment, is the cross. That the cross of Jesus is his finest moment. You know, when we go to, when we go to weddings, right, we um, often, are, we can't help but think of our own wedding. Right? You, you, every time you go to a wedding, you can't help but think of your own wedding. Whether it's to come or whether it's already come. You think back to your wedding or you're thinking forward imagining your wedding. And I think it's the same for Jesus. He's at this wedding and he's, he's thinking forward to his wedding. The wedding feast of the Lamb, Revelation calls it. As, as he returns and he's united to his bride. And he's thinking about what it will cost him to provide wine at his wedding feast. He says, my hour. My hour is what will provide wine at my wedding feast. Remember I said verse 6 where, where it starts describing these stone jars is a, is a real key for us in understanding this sign. That John is slowing down and he's giving details where, you know, he doesn't have a lot of details except verse 6 about these stone water jars. He gives all kinds of details about them. He says, pay attention to the jars. And what, what's happening here is that Jesus, is, he, he's taking orders from his heavenly father. And he knows he's going to provide wine. For the wedding to continue, the feast to continue. And he's looking around, what can I fill? Listen, they would have had empties, right? They, the, the feast has been going for some time. There would have been empties. But he looks around and he sees, let's use those. Let's use these stone jars. These stone jars that would have been used by the Jewish people in their ritual washing, these rites of purification to make sure that no uncleanness, that no spiritual uncleanness was touching them. These were used for bathing, for washing. These were used to hold holy water for religious purification rites. And Jesus says, yeah, let's use those. Let's not use the empties. Let's not use those wineskins or those bottles or whatever, whatever it is that they had wine in. He's saying, let's use these. Which is a shocking declaration of their insufficiency to bring purity and joy. That Jesus is saying in the loudest possible way, religion is insufficient. Religion will not bring you this kind of joy. Religion will not bring you this kind of satisfaction. Religion will not bring you purity. And so there's, there's, a, there's a shock factor here that he's, he's taking these um, instruments of, of religious sacredness, of holding holy water, and he fills them with wine. As uh, Bruxy Cavey, a pastor in, in Oakville, says, he says, don't miss the shock of that. He says, it's kind of like filling your baptismal tank with jello shots. There's a shocking factor to this. That Jesus is going out of his way to offend the religious establishment. To say, and, and to say, it 
is not found here. It's not found here. But how interesting is it that he takes these rituals of purification and he fills them and he transforms them into the very thing that he would use to symbolize his blood. Right? Because we know, and we're going to celebrate this later today, that at his last supper, just before his hour, Jesus takes a cup of wine and he says, this is my blood. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the cleansing, for the purification of your sins. He says, what those water pots were insufficient, unable to do, my blood accomplishes that. In the Old Testament, God turned water into blood as a symbol of judgment upon Pharaoh in Egypt. In the New Testament, through Jesus, he takes water and he turns it into wine as a symbol of forgiveness and purification and great joy. He says what religion, it can't purify. It can't deal with your guilt and your shame. Only my hour can do that. And so he uses these instruments of of religion to show the superiority of his grace. D.L. Moody said, life never came through the law. As someone has observed, when the law was given, 3,000 men lost life. But when grace and truth came at Pentecost, 3,000 obtained life. Under the law, if a man became a drunkard, the magistrates would take him out and stone him to death. When the prodigal son came home, grace met him and embraced him. Law says stone him. Grace says embrace him. Law says smite him. Grace says kiss him. Law went after him and bound him. Grace said, loose him and let him go. Law tells me how crooked I am. Grace comes and makes me straight. And Jesus here has in view that great wedding feast that's to come. That great wedding feast that's to come. It's pictured in many places in Scripture, especially in the book of Revelation. It's pictured in Isaiah 25. Look at this passage in Isaiah 25. It says, on this mountain in the... the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that's spread over all nations, so that, those things that would separate us. He says he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You have this beautiful picture of of heaven and earth being renewed and restored. Jesus coming to make all things new in the new heaven and the new earth. where, Where we have great joy, every tear wiped from every eye. And Jesus is our joy, that life is found in him and nowhere else. And it's to his glory that he is our joy, right? It's to his glory that he is our joy. He is not glorified. He's not honored when we take no delight in him, when we just begrudgingly obey him, when we just suck it up. But it's to his glory that he is our joy. So how do you receive that? How do you receive that great joy? How do you receive that purification? What did Mary say? There's two things I think hinting at it in the text. 
Mary says, do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you to do. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. What does he say to do? It says to believe on him. Well, scriptures say that over. It says it many times in John. It says in 1 John that what is he calling you to do? He's calling you to believe on his son. He's calling you to trust in him. Not to trust in your own rituals, not to trust in your own ideas, but to trust in him. Do whatever he tells you to do. And then take credit for what he's done. Don't you find it kind of hilarious that at the end of this story, at the end of this narrative, the groom, who's kind of, who's kind of the... He's kind of the idiot of the story, right? The groom? He's the one who wasn't organized, who didn't provide enough. He's the one who miscalculated. He's the one who messed up. The groom messed up. Jesus does all the work. Provides the wine. And who gets credit for what Jesus did? It's the groom. The groom's getting all the credit for this fine, exquisite wine that Jesus has provided. This beautiful picture of what happens in the Gospels. We would trust as we would believe in Jesus, the groom, who really pulled off the miracle. Doesn't get the credit, but the undergroom, the one who's messed up, who's done none of the work, gets credit for what Jesus has done. And so he calls you to believe in him. He calls you to believe in him. I find that much of my work as a pastor is to convince you that your greatest joy is found in believing in him. And in obeying him. That in doing whatever he tells you to do is actually the place of greatest joy for you. We talked about this last week. That sometimes we are resistant to God. He, he speaks really clearly to us in the scripture and says, don't do this. Just don't do it. Don't do that. Or do this. Live this way. Cultivate these virtues within you. And so often, whether it's our heart's desire or whether it's our thinking, says that's foolish. Or that's going to rob me of joy. If I do what Jesus says to do, if I do what the scriptures say to do, that's foolish or that will rob me of joy. And that's wrong. Because Jesus is the source of greatest joy. And sometimes his ways are different than the ways of this world. And sometimes his ways and what his instruction will contradict your natural desires and what makes sense to you. But we need to believe and we need to fight for joy. We need to believe that in following Jesus is your greatest joy. And seeking out reconciliation is your greatest joy. And living lives of generosity is your greatest joy. And sacrificing for the cause of the kingdom is your greatest joy. And bringing um, your ethics in line with his ethics is your greatest joy. And doing all things for his glory is your greatest joy. My hope is that you believe that. My hope is that you would see Jesus as beautiful today.
as the giver of great joy. That you would see the cost of his joy, what it cost him to provide joy to you. Real, lasting joy that will not run out, that will not disappoint, that will last forever. And that you would believe in him. Father, would you reveal the glory of Jesus to us in this sign? And we may his disciples, the disciples of Jesus, put their faith in him. That's our prayer, Father, that you would convince us of the great joy that's found in Christ. And I pray this in his name. Amen.